for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully, so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Also, thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Harry's stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision, so they created a trial offer. Claim yours by going to harrys.com. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Hey, bro. Hey, Allison. Today, we're going to talk about how to tell if your 401k is A-OK and what to do if it isn't. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, Allison, what's up? Hey, that's right. I'm the person who's what's up today, not bro. It's exciting. It is. So, bro, two people got married this weekend. Maybe you heard. And now that we're all done partying, it's time to take a look at the check. Uh, by which I mean, of course, Harry and Meghan Markle. Yes. Of and, England. And check is spelled with a Q-U-E at the end, I suppose. Absolutely. That's right. According to the England-based luxury wedding planner Amy Dunn, a woman most qualified to make outrageous guesses, the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle will end up costing £2 million, which is roughly $2.7 million. Wow. Let's break it down, shall we? Let's do that. All right. Well, they're having a humble affair at home, albeit the home is Windsor Castle in this case. At $75 a pop, they spent $45,000 on invites. These are all just estimates. On, I mean, no on one invites? knows for sure. Yeah, just on invites. Wow. Again, these are all just best guesstimates. So these could be totally off, but let's just like enjoy it, huh? <laughs> all right. Do. Estimates for a wedding dress are coming in at around $270,000. Dollars. Wow. You can buy you can buy a house to live in for that and it's a dress. All right, whatever. Flowers, $150 to $300,000 budget. So they invited 600 guests. So let's talk about food and wine and all that good stuff. The guests get lunch and dinner wow. and another 2,640 commoners will get tea and a snack. And so the estimates are that food and beverage will come in at about $680,000, which I think kind of sounds like a deal if the dress is already like $270,000. I don't know. It's all relative. All right, so $2.7 million, that's an expensive wedding. Still not as expensive as Prince Charles and Lady Diana's wedding. That apparently cost $48 million in 1981, or $110 million when adjusted for inflation. Well, here's the thing. So this so-called expert lady, when she was estimating all the expert lady, when she was estimating the cost of the wedding, she was only looking at the fun stuff, the dress, the food. She left out the largest part of the bill, which is, do you want to guess? Security. Yes. Really? Yes, that is it. So you gotta have you gotta have your wedding snipers. You gotta have your wedding what? policemen, escorts, and all of that security is estimated to cost up to forty million dollars for this wedding. And guess who gets stuck with the bill? The taxpayers. Yes, that's right. The taxpayers. Did, they, did you? Was there such a thing as a wedding sniper? Did you? Really no, well, it wasn't. It wasn't like. It wasn't like you. Like, well, ooh, who did you, what wedding sniper did you get for your wedding? He was the best. Let me give you my recommendations. No, I mean, you gotta have snipers, and it's just they are, happen to be at a wedding. <laughs> Here's a side note, though. 
for security for Kate and William's 2011 wedding, it only cost 6.35 million pounds. And Harry is the spare, not the heir. So I don't know why there's such a massive difference, why they're saying it's going to be so much more for his wedding than the others. But anyway, whatever. All right. So, $40 million. That is a small price to pay, considering what a windfall this wedding is going to be for the UK economy, according to some. Britain's very serious-sounding National Office for Statistics reports that the royal wedding could generate as much as 550 million pounds, or roughly 680 million U.S. dollars. And this is because of tourists coming in for the festivities, trinkets, souvenirs sold, all of that. PwC is skeptical that royal weddings really are such a boom to the UK's economy. William and Kate's wedding generated about 107 million pounds, but in perspective, that's less than 4% of the spending in the UK for Black Friday. Uh, there's maybe some more money to be squeezed out of that royal commemorative tea towel. Uh, Brand Finance, a company that sounds way less serious than the National Office of Statistics, thinks the wedding could create a boost of £1 billion. But they assigned an eye roll inducing 300 million pounds to something called PR value for UK. I don't, as if you're going to be like, there was a royal wedding. Now I want to go to the UK and spend all my money, I guess. Um, and they compared it to, let's say, 50 million in merchandise that will be sold. Speaking of merch, according to rack.com, the must have item is Harry and Meghan themed China. So for two hundred, you can get a plate. For forty nine bucks, you can get a mug. There's even um, an official commemorative plate, which is a lovely cornflower blue and it has initials and plenty of doodads and whirlies, and that goes for sixty seven dollars. Um, you can also buy some weird stuff like commemorative sweet ginger and American mustard flavored pork sausages. You can get coloring books and condoms, or as the Brits say, <laughs> condoms named crown jewels. That's not really how Brits say condoms, but they say it in such a way that just is so weird to American ears. You know what I'm talking about. I don't think I've had this conversation with many English folk, but I should now, I guess. Okay. <laughs> How many Brits have you known through the years? I know. <laughs> well, I, I went to school in England um, for a while, so. So you have experience, okay? <laughs> My mom listens to this show, Rick. So let's just walk it back a little. All right, so you're not unfortunately going to make a ton of money off your Harry and Meghan sparkle flavored bag of parsnip crisps. Uh, again, that's a commemorative thing you can buy. But you could maybe make some lucrative bets. Yes, that's right. Something called Patty Power, one of the largest sports gambling houses in the world, has more than a dozen prop bets around the wedding, including what tiara will Meghan wear because she has many options now. Uh, what dish will be in the main course? What color hat will the queen wear? Will it rain? Will Harry shave? Maybe you went a little crazy and made the bet that Donald Trump will walk Markle down the aisle. It had 500 to 1 odds. Man, how awesome would that have been if it hit, huh? <laughs> but, of course, as they say, unlucky in gambling, lucky in love. And that, bro, is what's up this week. Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org number 3030. 
Thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. As Robert Brokamp will tell you, it's an amazing shave at an amazing price. Right, bro? Absolutely. Closest shave I've ever had. Harry stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision, so they created a trial offer. You can claim yours by going to harrys.com fool. It's a $13 value that comes with a weighted ergonomic handle, a five-blade razor, shave gel, and a travel blade cover. Listeners of the show can redeem their trial set at harrys.com fool. Make sure you go to harrys.com fool to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. So the number one goal of investors is retirement, and for 55 million Americans, they plan to fund that goal by saving money in a defined contribution plan. So if you add up the amount of money in 401ks, 403bs, 457s, and all of that, you would have $7.7 trillion as of the end of 2017, according to the Investment Company Institute, and that's up from $3 trillion in 2000. So that's a lot of money. That's not bad. That's not bad. And if you're one of those Americans, I have some good news for you. 401ks have gotten better, thanks in part to lawsuits filed by your fellow workers. And that's a conclusion of a recent report from the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, which found that fees have been declining, actually, for several years, in part due to litigation initiated by workers in not-so-awesome plans. So that's the good news. However, the truth is that many 401ks are still mediocre, and some are just horrible. And you might be better off investing at least more of your retirement money elsewhere. Well, it's interesting that you can sue your employer if your 401k isn't great, because isn't that like a benefit? You'd think they'd be like, you get what you get, and you don't get upset. Well, it's interesting you say that, but when you offer a 401k, you have automatically made yourself a fiduciary, which means you are legally um, required to act in the best interest of the people you are serving. Okay, I didn't no, realize no, no, that. that. So point. then the Motley Fool is a f- is because the Motley Fool provides a 401k here to us, they are my fiduciary. Right. And, and, okay. and as well as the people on the 401k committee, That's which includes you! me. So I am a fiduciary. I to me. To you. Oh. And to everyone else here at the Motley Fool. So I could sue you. <laughs> you could sue me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so please don't do that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's actually an interesting point because. It actually requires a good bit of work to offer a 401k. It does require uh, a good bit of risk to offer a 401k. So, on one hand, we should be grateful for our employers for doing it. On the other hand, if they're going to be doing it, they're required to act in our best interest. So, here's what you should do to figure out whether you have a good, bad, or awesome 401k plan. It all starts, number one, with the fees. It does cost money to run a 401k. It costs more to have a 401k than compared to just a regular old brokerage account or an IRA. Part of it is because there are a lot of regulations required by the Department of Labor, IRS. 401k plans every year have to go through what's called non-discrimination testing. They can't benefit more people who have higher, they're known as highly compensated employees. So the people who are considered highly compensated or 5% owners of the companies can't be benefiting more than the rank and file. So there are cases actually where if the people who are making more money contribute more than everyone else, either the company has to throw more money into everyone's account just to throw it in there, or the highly compensated employees who put money in have to get their money taken back out. It has to go through that test each and every year. But how do you pass? I mean, if you if your company does a match and it's and it's based on your income, how would you ever pass that? Because people who are making more money are always going to naturally be making more 
contributions. It's a, it's done on a percentage. It's a, it's a percentage oh, basis. Okay. And the company gets around it partially by just throwing money into everyone's accounts. I'm sorry. I feel like this episode is now devolving into Allison throws random 401k <laughs> questions at bro and see if he has an answer. And so far you do. So Good far job. I do. Anyway, so that's just one example of something that a 401k has to pay for that a regular old account doesn't. And in about 80% of the plans, those costs are at least partially or fully covered by the employee, not the employer. So those are costs that you are paying. There's also, of course, the cost of the mutual funds in the 401k. There's the expense ratio, most people are, which is just percentage of annual assets. But anywhere from up to 20% of funds in 401ks actually charge commissions or some other ongoing marketing fee. Even though it's already in your 401k Those plan, marketing fees. exactly. So, so all-in costs, on average, for the average plan, according to a report from the Investment Company Institute and Brightscope, which is a company that rates 401k plans, on average, a participant pays about 0.51 percent a year to be in a 401k. So, not horrible, but there's a lot of variation around that, often based on plan size. So, the bigger the plan, the more those costs are spread out. The more bargaining power the plan has to get lower cost funds, those are lowest costs. But for the smaller plans, when you look at plans that have anywhere from a million to ten million dollars in assets, the average cost is one point one four percent a year. Oh, that's no joke. No joke, right? Exactly. So there's a lot of variety. What determines a big part of those costs? The number one cost is the investments. So the average four hundred one k has a little over twenty funds in it. The vast majority are actively managed funds, which means they have higher costs. About a quarter of the assets invested in 401ks are in index funds. Index funds, as we all know, historically outperform actively managed funds. So, according to Standard Poor's, only 16.3% of actively managed funds outperformed the market over the trailing 15 years. That means Many, many of those funds trailed the market, but if you're in a 401k, you had no choice, right? You, you can only choose from among the choices within the plan. Fortunately, most plans have a couple of index funds, but they don't have a good index fund for each category. Now, I'm not saying that all actively managed funds are bad. We have several in the Motley Fool's 401k. I help select them. But if you look at 401k assets as one big portfolio, you're probably seeing a lot of investments that are not keeping up with their benchmarks. There's another thing that's been going on with 401k plans, and this is where some of these lawsuits have come from, is where companies are putting in investment options in the plan that aren't necessarily the best ones for the employees, but they're good for the plan provider. So the biggest example of this, or at least the most famous, was employees and former employees of Fidelity suing Fidelity because the Fidelity 401k had too many Fidelity funds uh. in there. So there were Fidelity funds. Some of them were high-cost funds. Some of them funds were, did not have a long history, but Fidelity put them in anyhow. Um, so uh, according to this report from the Center for Retirement Research, up to 40 firms have been sued or are in the middle of being sued for what is called self-dealing. Wow. Basically, putting funds in the 401k they're not the best for employees, but they're being put in there for the good of the plan provider. Talk about not eating your own cooking. Huh? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and then I'll just add one other thing. I keep talking about 401ks. 
I'll, sort of including in that all kinds of employer-sponsored plans, but probably the ones with the highest expenses are 403Bs. So according to a report from um, the Plan Sponsor Council of America, up to 72% of the assets in 403Bs are annuities. And 403Bs are more common with non- charity, not right. charitable organizations They're and nonprofits. non-profits. So a lot of yeah. teachers, charitable organizations. Annuities, on average, have much higher expenses. So all these stats I'm giving you about the average expense of a plan, it's generally a 401k. You could probably double those costs. <laughs> Just assume it's worse if you're in a 403 Exactly, exactly. The people are, who are doing the, the kindest nonprofit work in our nation, sorry, you get the worst options. Right, exactly. In fact, that's pretty much what Ron Lieber wrote in the New York Times recently. The people who are doing the, the best work and not getting much money in return yeah. also have the worst retirement plans. So, <laughs> sorry, I'm, for listeners out there, I am making a sad, disgusted face. Yes, exactly. Okay, so those are the things you should know about 401k and other defined contribution plans. How do you find out what you pay? But fortunately, ever since 2012, the Department of Labor has required that employers provide a fee disclosure document. It's several pages long. It's a lot of legal ease. It's boring, but at least if you look through there. You will see, number one, what you're paying for administrative fees. It might be a flat fee. could be you're paying $100 a year or something like that. Or it could be a percentage of assets. Or it could be folded into the mutual funds themselves in in something called revenue sharing. So one example that I found online is of of a CPA looking at his own 401k. He has a fund that we have in the Motley Fool 401k. We have the Vanguard 500. We pay four basis points. In his plan, he's paying 25 basis points. That's because some of the costs running the plan have been folded into the mutual fund. You'll see this in the disclosure that you look at, but it's also an important thing to keep in mind because let's say you have a mutual fund in your 401k, and you're like, I wonder if that's a good fund. I'm going to go to Morningstar and check it out. But Morningstar is not going to have whether other fees have been added to that. You have to rely on the information that has provided your plan to make a judgment about the performance so of those investments. If they do roll in the fees into the cost of the mutual fund, I assume they do that across the board, and all the mutual funds have a little bit bumped up fees. Or no? No? They only pick out different ones? That is a very fascinating point that you're making, and we didn't plan that. It, it may not be in every single fund. But that's not fair. It's I thought not the fair. whole point is that it's supposed to be fair. It's not fair, because... The people who are choosing some funds are paying more fees than people are choosing other funds. Yeah. So it's important to figure that out. So you definitely do want to look at the document, by the way. You can ask your HR people. um, And I would feel. Wait, what's what's it called again? What's the form called again? Well, it's called 404A5, I think. But it's just your annual fee disclosure document that has to be sent. Some will send it quarterly, too, especially if 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 your provider's on top of things. You can ask the people in your HR department. I trust the people in my HR department. But my anecdotal experience of talking to people in HR departments is that they're not uh, investment professionals. They're not investment experts. They know they have to know a lot about a lot of things, their health care plan, their flexible spending care plan. So they may not actually know the details of the 401k. 
They might have basically just hired a company to do all the work for them. So you definitely have to dig into the into the documents. You also mentioned Brightscope earlier. Can I just go there and see how my 401k is rated? Yeah. So and excuse me while I also head to Brightscope and look up our 401k. Yes. So what Brightscope does is it pulls data from the filings that plans have to make every year. It's called a Form 5500. It pulls the data. It's very useful, very helpful. It compares, it gives your plan a rating, compares it to other plans within your peer group, so other plans within your industry. Mm-hmm. The one thing I will say is it's often delayed. So, for example, the information on the Motley Fool plan mm-hmm. is as of 2016. There haven't been many changes to our plan since then, so it's still pretty accurate. Um, but just know that if there's been a change to your plan in the last year or two, it may not be reflective in Brightscope's data. Do you know your rating? Your, do you 86. take this personally? Yes, you must take it personally. Yes, and I think 86. the top rating for our industry is 87. Yes, yeah. yes. So it's so. not like a grade where like you're looking for that 100, although you ideally could hit that point. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty picky, and a big part of Brightscope's formula is costs. Because we on our committee have reached out to Brightscope and asked, like, what do you have to do to get the 100? We're pretty comfortable with our plan because we do have higher, some higher costs because of the actively managed funds we have in our 401k. But because we feel good about those funds and we're on top of them, we're okay with the higher costs. But that does bring up a point that everyone should ask about their 401k, and that is, who's choosing the investments? Mm-hmm. Do you have an investment committee at your company, and do you trust them? Or are the investments being chosen by the company providing the plan? And why are they doing it? If they are a company that's offering a lot of funds of their own, make sure that those are still really good funds. If I were had a plan offered by, say, Vanguard, and all my plan all my funds were from Vanguard, I'd feel pretty comfortable with that. If I were with a plan that was offered by a full service broker, and all the plans came from all the funds came from that company, I'd probably feel less comfortable. So very quickly, let me go over just some things about why you would stay with your plan. Because the bottom line is there are plenty of good plans out there. So first of all, you might have super low-cost funds. If you look at the average expense ratio on mutual funds in 401ks, it's actually lower than when you get out in the marketplace because if you work for an employer, you have some bargaining power. So you might have great funds that you couldn't get elsewhere and you want to stay there. You might trust the investment company to stay on top of the funds to make sure that the funds in there are pretty good. Uh, it might be that your employer covers all the administrative costs, as they do here at The Motley Fool. Oh, so thanks. You, you know, you're welcome. So you don't have any extra costs other than the costs of the mutual funds. Uh, another one could be that your plan offers attractive investments not available outside of the plan. So in some plans, there are these funds that have been created just for that plan, and you couldn't get it elsewhere. You might want to stick with it. Another example is some funds have basically cash-like investments that have higher yields than regular old cash. So you might stick with your plan for that, too. So now, what to do if your 401k is not A-OK? So some standard advice is to take advantage of the match, contribute up to that point, and then move money to an IRA. I think that's good advice, but it is important to realize a couple of things, and that the match, in the vast majority of plans, the match does not vest immediately. In other words, it doesn't become yours immediately. You have to work there for a certain number of years. It might be that you have to work there for three years and then you're automatically invested. It might be that, which is more typical, you have to work there for five years and it gradually vests. However, the average person stays at a company for just four years. Hmm. 
So if you don't think you're going to be staying with that company long enough for the match to vest, it may not be worth contributing to a bad 401k just to get a match because you're going to leave anyhow. But if you're going to be there, it's a good match. Go ahead and stay. By the way, the average match is 3%. Hmm. Generally, it's 50 cents on the dollar up to 6%. But as I think I've mentioned in previous episodes, at Vanguard, they have more than 200 different matching formulas. So matches are all over the place. But if you're getting a match of 3%, you're getting about average. If you're getting a match higher than that, you actually have an above average plan. The other reason why you would contribute to the 401k and then go to an IRA, ideally a Roth IRA, is because it may be the only way you can get a Roth. At this point, about 65% of plans offer a Roth option, but a lot don't. And for many people, the Roth is the way to go, especially with tax rates being historically low right now. So if you think of the Roth as best for you, that might be another reason why you would just put in a certain amount in your 401k, but then max out an IRA, a Roth IRA. Other thing to do with your plan is, even if you have a very mediocre plan, chances are you might have one or two good funds. Just choose those funds and those asset classes, and then use your other accounts for the other asset classes. Generally speaking, that means most funds have at least an S&P 500 index fund. If you have a bad plan with bad options, other than that, just choose that. Use that for your U.S. large cap allocation, but then use other accounts for international, small cap, real estate, whatever else you want to put into your portfolio. A minority of plans do offer the brokerage option, which allows you to buy individual stocks as well as probably choose from thousands of other mutual funds and ETFs. That's also something to consider if the mutual funds in your plan are not very good. The problem with that is that many of these side brokerages within 401ks are more expensive than a traditional brokerage. So either the commissions on the trades are higher, or you have to pay an asset management fee underneath that. And even at The Motley Fool, we have to do that with the side brokerage in our 401k. You have to pay a certain amount on top of the trades. So it's a good alternative if that's your only choice, but it's still not a better deal than just opening a discount broker somewhere else. The other thing to do, of course, is advocate for a better plan. Bring, bring all these uh, facts up to the people who offer the plan at your office. Chances are they also are participating in the plan. They have an incentive to do a better job. Don't go in there guns blazing. Go in there with some research. Brightscope is a great resource, as is the Investment Company Institute, in terms of research on how much the average 401k costs. It's great to just bring in some facts there and say, hey, this is what the average is. We're paying more. Is there a way to get a better deal? Uh, and lastly, another possibility is to transfer the money to an IRA. Generally speaking, once you're in a plan, you have to stay in a plan. But for some plans, you can do something called an in-service distribution. The plan has to allow it, and generally you have to be 59 and a half. But if you are still working, you can move some of the money out of the plan to an IRA, get some lower costs or better investment options. And then, of course, there's always money with old plans. So if you have any money with a 401, in a 401k or 43B or 457 with an old employer, you can always roll that money out of that plan, either into an IRA or into your current plan, if it's a good one. So there you go. How to tell if your 401k is A-OK and what to do about it, courtesy of Bro. All right, we've got some housekeeping and some announcements. I think some of them are exciting, but we'll see. 
what you think. Uh, so if you are coming to Fool Fest or if you just happen to be in the D.C. area on May 30, we are hosting a podcast listener meetup. Fun! That is fun. So if you want to hang out with me and I don't know if bro will be able to make it. Probably I'll try, not. I'll try I'll my I'll best. Try. That's a no. Uh, you can even, but you still get me and probably Rick. Rick, you coming? Rick's coming. Uh, and other podcast uh, people like Chris, of course, Chris Hill and all those guys. Uh, email us at answers at fool.com and I'll send you the details. So, again, if you're going to be in the DC area, maybe you live here, maybe you're coming in for Fool Fest on May 30, uh, join us at the podcast listener meetup. Um, it's going to be downtown at a bar. It'll be fun. All right, email us, answers at fool.com. Also, for my Fool Festers, if you're attending and might be interested in joining us on the show, we're looking for a few people who might be willing to come on and share their investing story for an upcoming episode. Pretty please? <laughs> Usually when I ask for stuff, you guys are good enough to oblige, so I really hope this comes through. So if you're coming to Fool Fest, we want to hear your investing story and have you on the show. Won't you please come join us? Uh, so uh, email me again, also at answers at fool.com. That's just always going to be the email. And you can tell summer's around the corner because postcards are starting to come in. Kenneth and Aaron sent an amazingly bizarre postcard from Monaco. Um, it's a bunch of posh people sitting at a table eating snails, but their heads are hedgehog heads. Crazy. I love it. But it's in French, so we can't really, I don't know, is there any explanation for why that is? It's just, the, the title of the picture is Tea Time. That doesn't help. Uh, Rich sent us a card from Tombstone, Arizona, and one from Mount Rushmore. Thanks are also in order because you listeners keep leaving reviews on iTunes, and I really appreciate it. So I want to thank JSZ1969, Hot Soup Cooking, WGNJ, Newer Rider, Fulmzy, L. Dennis, and J-Hop88. Um, thank you so much. I'm going to start planting bad reviews on iTunes just so then I can circle back to you guys and be like, Meer, someone said something mean again. And then you guys will be awesome and jump to our defense because you are awesome. Okay, that's the show. It's edited drearily by Rick Engdahl. It's so rainy here in D.C. this week. It is miserable. Um, again, our email is answers at fool.com. Email me if you want details on the podcast listener meetup. Email me if you're up for coming on the show. I really hope you are. And for Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.